On today's episode, I will be speaking with Matt Cooper, co-CEO of Crowdcube. Crowdcube can be considered the first pioneer of online capital raising for startups. They started over 10 years ago in the UK and have created one of the most notable and important platforms in our industry on a global scale. Today, we will be hearing from co-CEO Matt Cooper as we discuss where Crowdcube has come from and where they and the industry are headed. As you listen to this episode, I want you to focus in on some key points, including first, that Crowdcube over its first 10 years of existence has raised over $2 billion for startups and has already returned over $100 million to investors. Any first time fund would hope to have deployed their first 25 to $50 million in the first 10 years. When you think about that and the fact that the team at Crowdcube has already deployed $2 billion into startups, you start to realize the magnitude of how powerful digital private markets can be. The second thing that I want you to listen for is how Matt and the team at Crowdcube are winning over larger, more established institutions to actually offer access to their venture funds and private equity funds to the general public. This is something we haven't seen in the U.S., largely because of issues around our current regulations. If you care about investing in private markets, it is on all of us to start speaking up to see these rules change. And lastly, Matt and his team have built a $0 customer acquisition cost model, where investors come to them through the sourcing of exceptionally high deal flow, rather than focusing on building demand, only for that demand to be disappointed in the deal flow. This strategy to me is brilliant and will ultimately lead to better outcomes for investors and founders alike. So with that, let's get on to the show and welcome Matt. For those that don't know you, Matt, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your role at Crowdcube, and, and how you came into that role. Yeah, so I'm um, I'm the co-CEO at Crowdcube. I've been with the business um, nearly a decade, actually. Uh, so joined in the really early days of not just the business, but the industry as well. Um, I run Crowdcube with a colleague of mine I've worked with for that entire period of time, Bill Simmons. Um my background prior to Crowdcube was uh, originally in the city, actually, in the, in the Square Mile in London. Um, worked at a variety of investment banks in both fixed income and equity. Uh, always got my timing wrong. I was in fixed income when everyone was making lots of money in equity, and I moved into equity just as the market went to shit and everybody moved into fixed income. Um, we've been building Crowdcube for, for um yeah, as I said, nearly 10 years. Um, we were the world's first equity crowdfunding platform. So Darren, the founder, invented it, uh, which is quite exciting. Um, took a few years to, to hit his straps post 2009, 2010. But now we're, we're pretty substantial. We operate mainly in the UK and the EU. Um, we have a unique set of licenses across the UK and the EU, which enable us to, to work with companies in Europe and in the UK. Um, we've had about two billion dollars invested in the platform since inception we managed to short of a billion individual securities in our in our nominee and we onboard about two to four thousand new registered investors every seven days uh, as we continue to work with really core cool companies um, on their their funding requirements so as kind of one of the pioneers in the space um obviously leading the way in the UK and Europe more, more broadly, and frankly, on a global scale, right? I think you're a great example for many of the platforms that have come about here in the United States as well. Um, talk to me about some of the challenges, 
pitfalls, the good, the bad, the ugly of having been really kind of the first and a pioneer out of the gate building this platform? Yeah, I think people talk about being early in different ways. One of our big shareholders is a venture fund called Borders and Capital. And one of the investors there, James Wise, says being early is only great if you're a fishmonger going to the fish market. Um, and at times it's felt like that. So in the early days, um, when you're building a financial services firm, particularly one that's dealing with retail investors, um, there's a massive amount of trust involved. There's also a massive amount of trust involved with working with companies and founders and on something as important as, as raising capital for the business. And you can't fast forward trust. You need to build it over time. It was a pretty slow flywheel to, to get spinning. But once the flywheel gets spinning, then um, it's really difficult for new entrants into the market um, to, to just come in and create a marketplace like ours. Um, so I think in the early days, it was building trust. It was working with the right types of companies, which in turn would deliver the right um, returns for investors. Um, that was really challenging because we were new. We weren't universally liked or respected by the incumbent investment community, the incumbent advisory community, the lawyers, the M&A guys, um, all of the people in the, the financial services industry in London didn't really know what to do with us. We were fortunate that we had a very supportive regulator in the UK. That helped fast track a little bit, that kind of trust element, um, because they were progressive in how they they viewed regulating the industry. We were the first major developed regulator to regulate crowdfunding. The FCA were the first regulator to really embrace crowdfunding, which really helped us. The major pitfalls, I guess, were ensuring we were working with the right types of companies, which would ultimately deliver the right types of returns for investors. And we very much majored in on the peer validation power of founders talking to other founders. So we always focused on the supply side. And to a certain extent, we still do. Without great quality supply, it doesn't matter how much demand you've got because they've got nothing to invest in if you've not focused on great quality supply. So in terms of the early days, that's that's kind of, I guess, one of the pitfalls was that that trying to earn trust. And, and secondly, one of the learnings was focus on the supply side before you try to fix the demand side. $2 billion raised, obviously a huge deal. And if you think about, you know, even a set of venture funds, right, the idea that over 10 years they could have raised $2 billion is a pretty big, massive undertaking, especially for a wholly new fund in their first 10 years to have $2 billion under management. Massive kudos to you. Now, some people have argued, you know, is there sustainability in building these marketplaces where you're having to source those, you know, $2 billion from many, many individuals, and it could be costly to acquire the investors, so on and so forth. Talk to me about sustainable growth and how you're making this something that is viable and scalable over time. Yeah, so one of the things we realized quite early on was if you work with the right type of company who's got the right type of customer community, the investor acquisition engine will take care of itself. So in financial services terms, the type of investor that we deal with um, and that we generally service is high household income, uh, upwardly mobile, expensive to reach and generally hard to reach down other channels. Our investor CAC is zero. So we onboard investors as a result of the businesses we work with on raising finance, either primary or secondary. 
And that's always been the way. Um, we've dabbled in the past with outdoor media, out-of-home advertising and other forms of, of paid acquisition, but none of it's worked particularly well. And we always fall back on this kind of zero CAC investor acquisition model. Our challenge actually has not been acquiring investors. It's been having the right type of investment opportunity for them to, to, to invest in. And that's why we've moved from, we very much moved away from very early stage primary fundraisers. We do very little seed now. We predominantly do pre-Series A up until IPO. And we do that via primary and secondary. We made a, an acquisition of a European secondary platform in the summer called Semper. And now we've really beefed up our kind of secondary liquidity capability for companies and, and founders and early employees, uh, which is fantastic. And again, that gives um, active investor base the opportunity to invest at a really late stage. You know, businesses that are often doing... 50 to 100 or 200 million in revenue that historically might have gone public by now or done you know the mega growth round from from tiger or or, or someone similar neither of those things are happening anymore so these types of companies are looking for liquidity um for early investors and staff um, and in turn that gives us a fantastic opportunity to serve up a different type of uh, risk profile and different type of investment opportunity to our our registered base when you discuss the kind of the zero dollar CAC. You're bringing on investors coming from these, you know, great founders, great companies, bringing in folks who are then investing in their deal. Once someone kind of joins the platform, you know, do you see that they continuously make investments? Do you have a sense of what those numbers look like? That's our challenge, right? Is to move somebody from a a one time investor to a to a six time investor. Um, we definitely target what we call a mass affluent audience. I think the, the classification of high net worth or accredited in the US is archaic. It hasn't really changed for 20 years. And people don't identify as high net worth anymore. They might identify as affluent, but they don't really identify as high net worth. So we very much target that mass affluent audience. Um, we want to move them from a one-time investor to a six-time investor. And what we've realized over time is you can't do that just offering the same stage of growth primary liquidity so now we do primary liquidity we do secondary liquidity and we also do funds um, so on crowdcube you can invest in the best early stage investment managers in the uk uh, on on crowdcube you can invest in um, what is a uk specific investment vehicle called a venture capital trust or vct which is a listed vehicle but very very tax efficient and then we'll continue to move upstream into later stage private equity and start to give a mass affluent audience exposure to, you know, the best logos in, in private equity and buyout world, like the Black Rocks of the world, which we're really excited about. And all of that adds up to our attempt to move people from a one-time investor to a three-time investor to a six-time investor. When you think about you entering the market and you, you talked about that trust element, and sentiment, right, across the industry, I think we've all experienced it where investors might think the deal flow isn't good enough or they, they just have these perceptions that they've developed around the industry. Obviously, incumbent players like to, you know, speak negatively of our industry. And we're starting to see that change. But I'd love to hear from you what some of those key elements you're hearing are changing kind of on the front lines from a sentiment perspective towards our industry. We should be clear that sentiment towards this form of fundraising in the UK is arguably a few years ahead of sentiment in the US. A few reasons for that. We, your regulation was, was earlier here. 
uh, we've been operating for longer and we were the first to, to do it and also the largest. Secondly, the UK and Europe just hasn't been awash with venture capital dollars um, in a way that the, the US has for, for the period of time it, it was. You look at our deal flow now, um, we do plenty of, of transactions which aren't venture-backed or co-investments with venture investors, but a lot of what we do is, is invest alongside these professional investors. And sometimes, and a lot of the time, these investors are top-tier Midas list funds. You know, the um, indexes, the Baldertons, the Google Ventures of the world. And that's always been really exciting for us because I never had the opportunity, um, uh, uh, you know, as somebody who could invest in a venture fund. You know, the, the barrier to entry was too high for me. But I can invest alongside Google Ventures or Index Ventures um, on Crowdcube from 50 bucks. Um, and the more of those transactions we do, the more venture funds we work with, the more portfolio companies we support, greater the level of acceptance and understanding of what we do is. Um, but that's taken a really long time. I spend a disproportionate amount of my time educating boards of directors of large companies, pacifying venture capital investors that maybe don't know what we do clearly enough or have an outdated view of what we do. And that will continue. It's continuing in Europe, where awareness versus the UK in the EU, they're not at the same levels. So UK most advanced, EU probably next most advanced, and then the US is um, kind of the laggard, I would say, in terms of professional investor adoption of what we do. When you kind of look out, you know, two, three years from now, you talked about kind of the secondary markets and providing liquidity. How are you seeing that developing? What are the areas of strength? What do we still need to work on? I think secondary market is a term banded around, uh, which isn't particularly helpful. I think the idea of a fully functioning secondary market for retail or high net worth mass affluent investors, we're not there yet. Um, people have tried and failed. Um, you get a mismatch between the bid and the offer. Companies don't want their shares priced outside of a fundraising window. Um, it doesn't really work for anybody. Um, so we've always steered clear of that. Our secondary strategy is firstly, always company led. So it's a, secondaries are a murky old world in the US. You've got broker on top of broker on top of broker on top of SPV on top of SPV on top of SPV. No one knows what the hell they're buying. Um, we've always focused on has to be company mandated, has to be company first. Um, ideally, it's tied to a recent or current pricing event. And ideally, that company is involving their customers and stakeholders as potential buyers of the security. Um, we're not interested in, in building a, 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 you know, a, a live two-way price secondary market. We don't think it works for anybody. So we think the future of secondary transactions are company-mandated, company-managed, employee liquidity events. And we have all of the technology and all of the regulatory permissions to enable companies to do those really, really seamlessly. That's fascinating. And I, I, I do think it's a unique view and, and one that I haven't heard a ton of, but there is that concern, right, for founders that if there's pricing going on in the market that makes you look bad, you know, that's one reason to stay away from going public, right, is just investor sentiment and people's needs to get liquidity, whatever it may be, that can drive your price down outside of your own control. Yeah. Um, so I, I absolutely see your, your perspective on that. With that in mind, when you talk about kind of this founder-led, company-led, secondary opportunities to create liquidity for employees and then customers and investors as well, 
in your experience, how do you see people kind of perceiving and, and taking those opportunities? Are founders open to that? Are investors interested in that? Yeah, so we did um, we did about 10 million bucks worth of secondaries last year, and we were just getting started. We, it was pre our acquisition of the, that we made in the summer. The industry is a bit more like the Wild West in the, in the US. Um, secondaries are much more widely understood in the US than they are in the UK and Europe. The EU is slightly more advanced because some of the secondary players that um, have popped up over the last couple of years started in the EU, not in the UK. Um, and what we're finding now, if you go to Paris and talk to a, a later stage um, founder of a technology company, they'll often be feeding back that they talk openly about their intent around employee liquidity on entry and exit interviews. They're quite open about it. They're educating the market. Other players in the market are educating the market, which forces founders to have an answer when they're asked a question. We're starting to see a little bit more of that in the UK, but not much. And it's definitely less than than the US, where you've got obviously big standout businesses like um, you know, SpaceX and stuff like that that are have and Stripe and uh, I think OpenAI are doing one at the moment. You know these big annual employee liquidity events. So we we haven't had that in the UK and Europe yet. So in terms of on the the sell side, the company side. We're still in that phase of education, but it's happening quite rapidly. It's a nice moment in time to be offering a liquidity solution to businesses when some of those liquidity opportunities that they might have had at the top of the cycle in 2020 and 2021 are now shut to them. On the investor side, it's a great time to be investing in repriced late stage private companies. Uh, it wasn't perhaps a great time to be investing in, in late stage private companies two years ago, but it definitely is now. So what we're doing in terms of education with our investor base is saying, look, you've got exposure at um, an early stage. You know, it was tax efficient. Um, you know, some of those investments are growing really, really nicely, but we can give you some exposure at pre-IPO stage, which now is really attractive because the business that was priced here is now priced down here. And here's your entry point. I love that. Very nice to hear. So now going back to the primary side, you know, I, I'd love to hear, you talked about this building trust exercise um, and building really great supply. What has been the sourcing strategy for supply? How are you continuing to attract really attractive companies to the platform? So we definitely benefit and have always benefited from peer validation. So a company looks at another business that they admire um, or perhaps a slightly larger business or more advanced business in the sector or vertical that they're working in um, work with us, they become inquisitive as to why they shouldn't be doing it also. Um, when we do a co-investment with a big high-profile fund, other funds then educate themselves about this form of fundraising and say, well, if it's good enough for them, why aren't they doing it? So that, that whole kind of peer validation piece is really, really important, and we play on that a lot. Um, we have a outbound business development function. Majority of what we do is is outbound developed, not um, inbound reactive. Um, but we're looking for different cues in businesses that might indicate they could do a great funding round on, on Crowdcube. We're looking at audience size and engagement across various different channels. We're looking at product type in terms of how engaged would a customer be with a particular product or service? Is it a completely transactional relationship? In which case, the propensity for that customer to want to invest in the business might be quite low. Or is it something that has a deep and meaningful connection to their life? 
in which case the propensity to want to invest in the business is likely to be quite high. We're looking at a lot of things that um, a VC or a professional investor wouldn't necessarily look at, but some of the same things. Um, and then we'll go out and, and talk to those businesses and, and educate them on what we do and why we do it. Um, and hopefully um, help them with the fundraise when the time's right. One thing that we can't do is force timelines. So these people aren't buying photocopiers or a piece of HR software. It's you fundraise at the point you need to fundraise. Therefore, you know, we're always monitoring when companies are likely to need to fundraise in order to ensure we're engaging with them at the right moment in time. I know recently the rules in, in the EU basically tried to open up the doors so that investors, whether you're in the UK or you're in Italy or you're in France, will be able to invest in a deal. Um, can you talk more about A, how those rules work and B, are you seeing adoption kind of cross borders in the EU now? Yeah, absolutely. So we have um, we have a team in Paris um, that's grown quite quickly. Um, we're, we're already the sort of dominant um, retail investment platform in, in France and Northern Europe um, and pretty much the same in, in Spain as well. Um, there's a very fragmented market, a little bit like the US um, across the EU, where you've got lots of local players. The problem with small local platforms is they're only going to ever going to get so big. Um, and it's very, very difficult to compete with us who are completely pan-European and, and have the UK market as well. Um, what we're seeing is generally, if a business has an international footprint to their customer base, they will get an international footprint to their investor base. So I think the maximum we've done is businesses that have raised money from investors in 80 to 100 different countries in a single round. Um, you know, 50 different countries represented, reasonably common. We'll do that multiple times a year. Um, but generally, the concentration of capital and the investor count will be highest where the business is most active in terms of operating their product or service. When we're doing B2B or clean tech or med tech that isn't consumer facing, the investment can come from anywhere. And that's really, really exciting. And the reason it can come from anywhere is that we have a regulated business in the EU via the financial regulator in Spain, the CMNV. Uh, we have an office in Barcelona. That gives us complete pan-European coverage to raise from any business in the EU, from any investor in the EU. We also hold regulation through our London um, uh, office with the regulator in the UK, the, the FCA. That gives us the ability to raise for UK businesses from investors from 150 countries. Put those two things together, and now we work with late stage companies who've got both a UK and an EU audience. We can raise for them under two different prospectus limits or two different jurisdictions, um, up to 13 million euros per annum from retail or unaccredited investors. And they can do that every year. And that can be primary or it can be secondary. Um, and what we expect to happen, certainly in the UK, and we think the EU will follow, is a lifting of the prospectus limit because part of their um, stated objective is to promote retail investment into private companies. Therefore, a private business in the UK or the EU will be able to raise an unlimited amount of capital from retail investors and their customers and have one line on their cap table, on their share register, and do that as many times as they like. Um, and this is this is founder-friendly capital, right? No board seat, reasonably limited information rights, and normally ordinary shares. 
what a lot of folks have talked about is that there will be, you know, these catalyst events where some major wins are had in the market where people actually get returned a lot of money. Um, and from that, people get excited about the industry and go, oh, okay, this is truly a viable path to potentially making a lot of money, right? Building that excitement and helping people understand these are real investments. With that in mind, since you've had a longer track record and been in market longer than, than most of the companies here in the U.S., have you started to see any exits? Can you talk to any uh, that are really promising or have done very well for investors? Yeah, we've, we've had um, I think certainly north of $100 million returned to investors already. Um, the, we only really started doing sort of Series A plus venture back rounds in about 2015, 2016. So some of that cohort is starting to come um, to maturity. We did the A round of what is probably the fastest growing private company on earth at the moment in Revolut, which is really, really exciting. Um, so we uh, enabled investors on CrowdCube to invest in that business, I think at about $30 million pre-money. That business is now worth, well, they haven't haven't raised money for a little while, but um, last round pricing, it was somewhere in the tune of 30 billion, I think. And yeah, we've got a portfolio of some of the fastest growing companies in the UK and the EU. And we're very, very focused on creating liquidity events for those CrowdCube investors in into those businesses. And we'll see more of that happening this year. Last question for you here, um, and a, a little bit of a, a technical nerdy question, but I'm really curious to hear. When you have folks investing across tens of countries, if not hundreds of countries, and returns start to flow back in, what are the complexities around just payment and getting returns to everybody that is now invested in that deal, which is way more complex than it necessarily ever has been? We like classic kind of tech business. You always like to build this kind of shiny visible stuff um, and devote product and engineering resource to that. But the reality is the plumbing, the expertise, the team and the regulatory permissions that go behind the front end of what we do is really, really important because you know, we're routinely seeing businesses where we put tens of thousands of investors into a single funding round. Um, we've got companies with 40,000 investors on the, on the cap table or managed through our nominee. Um, so we need to have the infrastructure and the technical chops to uh, uh, enable an exit when it comes um, for those companies and those investors. Um, so we work closely with, with Stripe. We also work with Checkout.com. Um, we've honed the systems and processes for getting uh, returns to people in a compliant, fast way, but it's complicated. It's why building another CrowdCube would be very, very difficult for somebody because they haven't had 10 plus years of experience of dealing with payouts, liquidations, flotations, and every conceivable form of M&A. We've done all of it across multiple countries. So there's nothing we haven't really seen um, up until this point. So it's just a case of replicating and refining what went before. Well, Matt, thank you very much to you and the CrowdCube team for really being pioneers of the entire industry. Um, I think there's a lot the U.S. platforms can learn from all of you and that the industry at whole can learn from. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your insights. And to all of our listeners, as always, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.